0: Hello, and welcome to the news meeting, where we throw open the doors on the argument that happens in newsrooms everywhere, every day. It's the argument about what should lead the news and what follows, what matters and why. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week to me, and we're going to try and make sense of what we know, what it means, and perhaps even where it leads. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise. I've edited the Times newspaper, and I've been the director of BBC News. I've seen a few of these news meetings in my time. And my job in all of it, at the end, is to try and make a judgment about what really should lead the news. So from Podimo and Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. If it's still not quite too late in 2023 to say this, Happy New Year. I'm joined by three of my colleagues here at Tortoise. Dave Taylor is an editor at Tortoise. Hi, James. Uh, We worked together uh, when we were both at the Times. He was the US editor. And Dave, of course, is becoming a regular on the news meeting and has had, uh, we're just totting it up at the end of last year, Dave, uh, a range of results. Stories have led the news, run second and third. You've really been across the map.
1: A mid table, I'd say.
0: (laughs) Mark St. Andrew runs all of our programming here at Tortoise, all of our think ins and live events. It's his first time here. You can treat me gently not to be underestimated. <laughs> I can see Liz already looking slightly, no, actually not, <laughs> looking, nervous, looking frighteningly <laughs> determined Liz. Liz Mosley is back, she's an editor at Tortoise and if you've listened before you'll know she's been here. I mean you're not counting Liz but if I were to ask you how many times have you won? Twice. Right and she and Dave have developed, um, is it a healthy rivalry or should we just call it a rivalry?
1: I mean, there's nothing healthy about it.
0: (laughs) Of course, this is a bit different to a normal news meeting. If you've been to one of those, you'll know that often there's loads and loads of news and sometimes the cupboard's bare, there's nothing at all. But here, each person has brought only one story. Dave, Mark and Liz are going to pitch their story and then together we're going to try and figure out what we know about it, what we think that means, what are the bits of the story that we don't quite know enough about yet and in the end, try and rank what story should lead the news, what the running order should be. Before we hear them, here's a quick reminder of some of the stories of the week
1: Extinction Rebellion issued a statement yesterday entitled, We Quit. Just after midnight on New Year's Day, Ukraine launched a strike. The latest Ukrainian attack could be one of the deadliest on Russian forces since the start of the war. A walrus who washed up in Scarborough yesterday has returned to the sea and swum off.
2: Today, Republicans exploded into absolute chaos.
0: The right-wing faction view Mr McCarthy as ideologically unreliable.
2: He's part of the swamp cartel.
0: Six votes have now passed without him securing a majority. The last time more than one ballot was needed was 100 years ago. Thousands of mourners have gathered in Sao Paulo to pay their final respects to Pele.
3: He could dribble the length of the field, thread the perfect pass or blast a devastating shot from here.
2: Anywhere.
0: It's hardly been a quiet start to the year. There's been a fair bit happening this week, so let's start with long stories short. In a single sentence, what's your story, Dave? You go first.
1: We need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that's Very good. nice. Great,
4: Mark. Is the British Museum about to lose its marbles?
3: Ooh, I
0: love that story,
4: um, Liz.
3: Welcome to the National Death Service. <laughs>
0: oh, way to of the year.
3: Thank
1: you.
0: It's
1: <laughs> just inspiring.
0: Sort of <laughs> <that we're not> <laughs> <before>. <laughs> All right, let's start with Dave.
1: So, yeah, it's the return of the Republicans to power in Washington and the absolutely almighty mess they've made of it from day one. And the Kevin in question is Kevin McCarthy, the man who wants to be the new Speaker of the House. That was the role that Nancy Pelosi did before uh, the Republicans managed to scrape a win in the November midterms. So it should have been a a sort of lap of honour, week of celebration for them. They're back in power in at least half of Congress for the first time in five years. They had a really thin majority and that is the problem for him. So something that ought to be ceremonial and procedural, the majority votes for their guy to lead the, the the way as speaker has all unraveled because there's about 20 hardline right-wingers in his party who've realized that there's something to be gained from digging their heels in so for the first time in a century he wasn't able to get across the line with his votes C- can we get the implications of it in a second though dave mm. uh, because I, I don't want to pretend that i thought
0: that this was the way it worked i assume that if the republicans win the house their person become speaker automatically. Mm-hmm. I didn't realise there was a vote there was a whole tussle for it. So what's the tussle actually about? What do they not like about Kevin McCarthy?
1: They don't like him. The The right wing doesn't like him because they think that he is the walking embodiment of the sort of prey to lobbyists, centrist establishment kind of Republican that Trump turned into sort of a bunch of hate figures within his own party really. So he's, they he's, resent but, him rather.
0: Uh, that, that he's a kind of swamp figure, he's a kind of man of Washington.
1: So that, yes so that, that, that's certainly how it's boiled down, that they regard him as the establishment and what they've noted is that there is an opportunity for them because it's such a small majority he's sort of dependent on their votes. It's a bit like you know innumerable prime ministers in the UK when they were sitting there trying to get Brexit votes through you know suddenly four or five people become the power in the land and and where we are is this group of disparate you know slightly um gadflyish republicans all suddenly think I'd quite like a seat on that really important committee or I'd like to change the rules on how you can vote out the speaker. And so they're playing hardball, negotiating on things like that.
4: Santos is is my favourite one. Have you seen him? He's he's the one that's lied about everything. <coughs> he's lied about where he went to school, what he's done, you know, he never worked at Goldman Sachs, he's never worked at Citibank. He made out that his grandparents were fleeing uh, the Nazis from the Ukraine in the 40s, and they weren't. They lived in Brazil. He said his mum died in 9-11 in the World Trade Centre, and she's a nurse from Brazil. She died in 2016. Like, And then he keeps sort of invoking lots of things, like, oh, you play, I don't want to play the Holocaust <coughs> card, and he invokes all this Jewish kind of stuff. And then people went, oh, well, actually, you're Catholic. And he was like, oh, I never said I was Jewish. I just said I was Jew- Mm-ish.
0: Can I tell you, the only thing that gives me pause about this particular story is, you know, when journalists start quoting, this is the first time it's happened in X hundred years or let me take you back to 18-something or other, often what I think that means is something very important is happening and we don't quite know what it means, just hasn't happened for a long time. And And with this particular story, beyond the spectacle of... Can't rather run a bath, you know, can't choose a leader in Congress. I don't yet understand what it actually means, whether it has any impact on anything other than just being a, a mighty mess in Congress.
1: I mean certainly reputationally it's it's that, isn't it? If if they talk a lot about optics in uh, in Washington politics and and this looks terrible, doesn't it? You know, you've just Terrible for all
0: it, politicians, or particularly the Republicans. I think
1: particularly for the Republicans, if you were trying to sort of push past the, you know, the disarray and debacle of the end of Trump's presidency to say, look, we're back and we are going to show
4: you how to run things. But the guy they want the wanted, first thing
1: they do is a The,
4: the guy they the, they want is an alternative. Didn't I see he wants Kevin McCarthy? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Liz, what do you think?
3: So I'm really encouraged, James. Um, that you just admitted that you don't really understand American politics because I really don't at all <laughs> and I've really tried and this story it does feel both momentous and nothing <laughs> and I don't know how much of that is because I just don't really get it or how much of that is just, that is what it is it's a, it, it's it's chaos but the actual practical implications of it for the direction of anything are are negligible.
0: Dave, thank you Mark, bring Hi. us your marbles
4: So the marbles, so This was quite hard to find a story, particularly this week at the start of the year, because with New Year and everything, it took a while for things to get going. And then this one turned up. And every time we do anything at Tortoise, when we put an event on, I always ask myself, you know, is it slow? Is it wise? I don't always get the answer I'm expecting. But this has to be the slowest news story (laughs) and (laughs) spanning as it does about 1500 years. And I think what's notable about it is I think we're finally about to reach some closure. And that's exciting. Closure is a good thing. So um, it's a story of bribery and corruption and wars and world leaders and shady deals and secret meetings. But it looks like after 200 years of legal wrangles and very public spats, the Parthenon marbles could be returned, sort of, to Greece. And it's significant, I think, for a number of reasons. The first one is this is the first time that the British Museum has confirmed Publicly, that discussions are taking place. But historically, the stance has always been Museums Act means we can't give anything back. We don't want, you know, this is where they live. We believe they've obtained legally. Um, Lord Elgin he showed us the receipts well he didn't show us the receipts he showed us the italian copy of an english translation of the receipts um and and they've and the government have always said it's not up to us it's up to the british museum but they've come out and they've said that no, we've had these discussions there's an interesting little wrinkle in it which is in december michelle donnellan was asked uh, as culture secretary um where do you stand on the Elgin marbles? Mm. I guess it's that question they ask you when you're culture secretary. And she said that uh, she sympathised with the Greeks. And, mm. You know, yeah, they should have them back. But she thought it was a very slippery slope to go down returning them. Um, and, and Mark, sorry, this is where we find out
0: whether or not Mark <coughs> and Andrew has a kind of Wikipedia function. Just, just go Do you slowly. want the background? Yeah, I do. Okay, so when the did background. Elgin get them? Where did he get them from? So, what are they? Where do they sit in the British Museum? Fine. What's the whole
4: deal? So it's 1798. OK, and everyone's uh, quoting historic moments <laughs> <lines> here. <laughs> and an and Earl, 7th Earl of Elgin, Thomas Bruce, uh, he's invited to be ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, mm. which owns most of that part of the world at that time. And before he takes up the post, he goes to the British government and says, look, there's tons of stuff lying around here because there's been a war in Greece about 150 years previously, which destroyed a lot of the classical monuments and buildings. And he said, there's a lot of stuff lying around. Do you want me to kind of make some sketches, take some plaster casts while you know, before I start the job? And the British government was like, nah, not interested. So he thought, fine, do you know what? I'll do it myself. So he hires a couple of artists. And as with every project, there's mission creep. And they go from sketching and taking plaster casts to lifting various bits of statue, parts of building, freezes. And he squirrels them away to Malta. And did he buy them, steal them? What were the terms? Which so the story goes, his version of events is because it was, at the time, the Acropolis was a, a, a fort. The, the Ottomans were using it as a fort. So he got permission from the Turks to go in and rescue various bits of, of, of statue and whatever. And... They gave him permission and they were his to do. They were interested. The, whatever he collected was his to do with what he wanted. He sends it to Malta with the vision of installing it all at Broomhall House, which is the Bruce family seat up in Scotland, which, oddly enough, on their website makes no mention of any of this. <laughs> um, he It cost him a fair whack as well. It cost him the best part of, in new money, about five million quid. To, to get all this stuff and store it. Then real life gets in the way and he encounters a really expensive divorce, which is going to cost him quite a pretty penny. He needs to raise a lot of money quite quickly and he shops them around. Various people express interest in buying them, including Napoleon, um, and eventually he sells them to the British government for less than half of what it cost him. A fire sale price of about two million quid the British government takes them isn't sure what to do with them and bundles them off in trusteeship to the British Museum huh and that's where they've sat for the past sort of 200 odd So what's years. happened this week so what's well, What's happened since the nineteen eighties is it's been very public <laughs> rouse. And yes. This goes on, it's I told you it's a long, slow story. No, so since the nineteen eighties there's been a really public campaign from Greece, um using, you know, the Greek culture minister, Melina McCurry, all sorts of people have lobbied the British government to say, We're ready now, you know, Greece it's 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 independent country, we've got a state of the art. Uh, acropolis museum we're ready you know we've got the guidebooks printed we've got the labels ready to go we we can house these and incidentally we have the rest of the parthenon here and we can because it's, yeah. it's here and it kind of makes sense liz what do you think
3: i've enjoyed that <laughs> <laughs> greek story well, time <laughs> <laughs> with mark yeah
0: it's a trundle through history
3: Yeah, it is um th- as regards the story um, I think in your opening gambit, the key word, Mark, is sort of. We're giving the mar- marbles back, sort of, because we aren't. And so much as we here at Tortoise, particularly in the last sort of few years, we've been quite close to this mm-hmm. in its context. And when we all talked about Colston a lot and that whole thing, and, and it feels to me, th- it, it sits as one jigsaw piece in a very big and important, as you say, long, complex... Um, it's not really a news story. It's more a sort of sense of the shifting tectonic plates of how we think of ourselves culturally and how the world relates to one another. I'm not sure it's a massive deal news wise.
0: But isn't there, isn't there a thing? Do you remember when that Edward Colston statue was pulled down? And actually, Mark, you might have arranged this, but the historian David Olasoga came and did one of yeah. our thinkings. And he made this brilliant point. He was like, statues are not history the pulling down of the statue it's, is history yeah. right and and in the same sense actually there is something going on here where britain and it's happening in france and germany as well but we're here britain is saying okay what is our relationship with our past with our neighbours with our sense of global ownership ownership of the world story as well as our own something Something is happening. Something will happen. And it's moving quickly. Move.
4: It's moving quickly. So they're saying, I mean, it's only as le- recently as end of 2021, the museum was saying "It's the ownership of these is not in dispute and they are ours. And they're now saying that the marbles could be in Athens this year. And the amazing thing is, do you remember, I don't know whether you were... Had
0: this conversation, Dave. This was maybe a year or two ago, because there were these arguments around appointments to public bodies, arts institutions, where the government's position was: this is under Boris Johnson. The government's position was retain and explain. Mm -hmm. It was the absolute position of the government that if you if you wanted to become a trustee of the British Museum, you had to sign up to retain and explain. Mm -hmm. That was their position. So something has moved really.
1: Yeah, I think it's significant. The language is totally different. It is interesting that the, the 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 concerns in the sort of cultural community around that time were that people who were not Tories were being pushed out of committees and it was sort of placemen and women being being installed. Yeah. Um, and here we are with, you know, a former Tory Chancellor, George Osborne, being the, the person yeah. at the British Museum who, who sees this, it seems, in quite a different way to... For instance, Boris Johnson and that person, what's the name, Liz Truss. Um, you oh, know. Yeah. There's, there's something
3: rather that really appeals to me about the, the way, how you describe the way that it has been done. This yes. last chapter, which is something that has felt angry and frightening and uh, unpleasant for a long time, can be resolved politely. In a quite a quiet and dignified way. There's something very appealing about that counterpoint. It's so the classic thing: is that
0: you get your Parthenon marbles, and we'll give you some British fudge. Yeah. That's what they're yeah, getting here. exactly. All right, let's take a break, and afterwards, we're going to hear Liz's story, and then we'll try and make clear what leads.
1: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
2: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: What have you got?
3: I'm um, Sorry about the headline. I couldn't come up with anything better. It's <laughs> really miserable. Um, and obviously, if we all had a pound for every time we've read a NHS in crisis, NHS on the precipice headline, we wouldn't have to do this podcast. But um, I do think that what is happening in the National Health Service at the moment, and particularly in terms of the news hook, what it means politically, given where we are in the election cycle, is the most important and significant story of the week. Um, we can talk about the uh, horrible anecdotes, frightening statistics and all of that stuff. Um, I suppose my starting point for this is by next March time, March 2024, I don't think there'll be a family left in this country that won't have a horror story of some kind. Um, this winter is going to be difficult. Next winter's going to be absolutely terrible. And so for my money, um, it makes the NHS and the future thereof the battleground for the next general election. I I strongly believe that to be the case. And the thing that I think is fascinating and frustrating in equal measure is that this week um, the key spokespeople in the Labour Party can't get their act together about how they're going to play it. And that's, that's where I come into it.
0: And just explain, what the because I'm confused about what the division is in Labour about the NHS. I
3: think we all are, a little bit. So from what I can manage to piece together, you've got um, the health secretary, West Streeting, who has over the past sort of few weeks and months made a number of statements and speeches and things. His position is broadly this, and I hope I'm not doing him a disservice as i written this way. Um, Yes, we've got a plan for more staffing um yes we've got a plan to use more of the private sector to help alleviate backlogs and and you know productivity and efficiency and all of those things but there is um he's proposed a, a number of real deep reform packages to do with shifting focus from review follow up appointments to earlier diagnostic appointments and things like that but it's, but what the way he upset the british medical association was by effectively saying there is no point throwing good money after bad in a model that we have proven isn't going to work now and won't work in the future. Um, And that has put him at odds with the British medical Association. The split in the Labour Party, which was tr- transpired this week, was a doctor, crucially, uh, Racine allen Khan. She's the M- MP for Tooting, but she's also the shadow mental health minister, was on the radio talking to Martha Carney and refused to agree with his position. She says, I'm here for more staff, but I'm not here for saying you're going to have to just get your act together and be more efficient, lads. She wouldn't kind of go there with him. And unless the Labour Party can find a position which is simple and coherent, it's such a missed opportunity to, you know, put the nail in the coffin for a Conservative government that is imploding anyway. It
0: was, if, if someone listened to this and they didn't listen to that interview, it was weird.
3: Yeah. Five I times.
0: Five times. And I sat there and to begin with, I couldn't understand what the question was, and it showed me that I was out of touch with what's happening in terms of Labour politics, because I think it was Martha Carney doing the interview. That's right, yeah. I was hearing it and thinking, why are you asking her whether she agrees with her boss? That's got to be the easiest question to answer on Labour phone, <laughs> yeah. which is, yes, of course I would agree with the Shadow <laughs> Health Secretary. And again and again, she didn't agree. What I didn't get from the interview, and I still don't really understand is what her disagreement is. So if there is a fundamental split within Labour let's remember mm-hmm. their proudest achievement is the creation of the NHS, mm-hmm. if they can't agree on its future, I don't I understand what we Streeting is saying. I don't really understand what the rest of the Labour Party is saying. They're just saying we just commit more resources and keep going.
3: So again, I and I think this is really difficult because there's a number of, of, of sort of building blocks that I I just want it to be clear which order they go in. Right. Um, more staff do we need them there's already more than there was pre pandemic more money do we need it how does the money relate to the staff where does this intersect with the immigration question as to whether there where are all the vac- why are there so many vacancies then if there's also more staff and then there's this additional question which is to say um how far can you reform the existing system without tearing it all up and starting all over again. And I I wonder if the hesitation from the Labour Party perspective is that as soon as you start saying, we are the party that will fix the NHS, it gives the Conservatives a a very easy thing to say, whoops, they're going to blow the economy, taxation, taxation, we can't just keep spending all this money, it's insane.
1: I mean, one of the things that um, we reported on at the beginning of the pandemic was the fundamental gap that was between the number of beds we had per person in british hospitals relative to the rest of europe and it's striking that you know we i think the figures are we've got like 2.4 beds per 100,000 people germany's got 8 mm. and the average in the eu is 5 mm. so 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 if we're we're way below average and and that number has fallen as you might expect with with the era of austerity it's fallen like many other metrics over a decade so there are many fewer beds now than there were partly it's about um staffing and and demand isn't it but um but that is that's about capacity yeah And, and it's and you've seen it especially um bite in general and acute where it's your overnight stays you know it's sort of held good on maternity let's say it's also down on mental health but you know there is a problem with the person who shows up at A&E and needs to stay in
4: overnight Mark? Um, So there are two things that I thought were interesting the first one is in terms of the Labour response I guess at the moment they don't necessarily need to dive into the specifics right they've got that luxury because there isn't going to be a general election this year they can sit back and just talk in general terms and just let the bin fire happen because if they go out with any specifics now, they run the risk of having their policies and ideas stolen. So I think that, I think it's natural for them to be quite reticent. I see it as a strategy, whether it's the right one, I don't know. And then the other bit was someone mentioned in a meeting earlier, which I thought was interesting, this idea that um, people are kind of sort of probably more easily triggered and are going you know, going straight to A&E with mild things which either they might have just sort of seen off at home or gone to the doctor for but they can't get a doctor's appointment people are panicky about all sorts of things be it COVID, strep, whatever and the whole sort of shape of the health service just isn't it's, it's not the right shape it needs to be for the way that we can access medicine and healthcare nowadays um,
0: yeah. do you, what, what do you think Liz of that issue the one reservation I've got about this story is you end up having an argument about policy choices within Labour mm-hmm. a year or possibly two from when they're in government.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, I th- and I think that is a, a, a perfectly fair um, criticism mm-hmm. of the of the way that I chose to go into it.
0: Thank you all. I need to make a decision about which story we're going to lead with. So before I do that, I just want to know which one each of you would pick. And remember, you can't choose your own. Dave, I'm going to invite you to go first.
1: Uh, I... I sort of love the way Mark has told the British Museum story. So I think I'm going to go for that. The notion that the Indiana Jones era is over um, is a great one. And I think, actually, if we're looking for a hopeful story to start the new year, this is a move that a good nation could make. It's a act of reparation that's relatively easy to do I think
4: doesn't hurt anyone You're looking very handsome today David (laughs) (laughs) Mark what do you think? Uh, Oh gosh Um, so in terms of political knockabout I really enjoy the American politics story but like Liz says it's because I don't really understand the implications of it so I can enjoy the sort of buffoonery and, and just nuttiness of the whole situation um, and I would like to know more about it. Could I tell you one one fact that might tip you um,
1: Kevin McCarthy is such a suck up to Donald Trump that he f- realised that Trump had two favourite flavours of starburst sweets which are the strawberry and the cherry, and he made his staffers go through a pile of Starburst sweets, pick out the ones Trump liked, put them in a jar, and send them as a gift to the White
4: House. You should have pitched that one. That's brilliant. <laughs> that's, that's genius. Journalism, that's journalism, my friend. That's, that's the proper story. That's, <laughs> <genius. laughs> that's what I call colour. And I think the NHS the NHS story is is just so big, and I know that when we've tried to tackle bits of it before, that's been the challenge. And so I'm, I think... I like. I want to know more about the America politics story, yeah, the Congress story. Liz?
3: I go for we need to talk about Kevin, for the reasons uh, that I think I do need to know about Kevin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's really interesting about this week is that all three stories are fundamentally different. So by any normal measure, you would say that the person who, if you like, holds the mic in the parliament of the what is still the world's singular superpower, and the fact that that can't be decided, and the division within politics and parties that gets you there, and the shadow of Trump, that walks into the lead spot on the news any single day. Not least because the pictures are amazing, and the counts are amazing, and the historic precedent is extraordinary. But actually, I'm going to run that third. And the reason for it is, Dave, the reason for that is I think it is a spectacle. But as yet, you can't get to the so what. It's not clear yet what the implications of that are, whether that really is going to constrain the Biden administration or what goes through Congress. And I'm enormously tempted by the Parthenon marbles as a story for this reason, which is a reason nothing to do with Greece. When I started out as a reporter, someone said to me, you know, we in journalism got the whole of the 1960s wrong. We reported Harold Wilson, but the thing that really mattered was the Beatles. And I think to myself, we in journalism tend to report the news wrong. We do politics, then these cultural moments happen. And actually they signify something much deeper. And I think that the Parthenon Marble story signifies a fundamentally different relationship between Britain and British people and the world. And your point, Dave, about a good nation, there's a version of us which, instead of being the curators and collectors of the world's artefacts, we are sharers and exchangers and we have a different relationship with the world. And if you land that correctly in the telling of it, I think it gives you a different kind of pride in what it is to be British. But the reason that I'm actually going to lead—I choose to lead with Liz's story and with the NHS is that day in, day out, you hear these scare stories... And they're not scare stories, they're real traumas, they're dramas, they're, they're, they're stories of you know terrible fear and often loss, and they just grind you down. They don't actually tell you anything new. But I think that Liz has put her finger on something that is fundamental, which is if the founders of the NHS are now themselves divided about the direction of the NHS and facing a choice which the whole country knows we face which is either you are going to need to pour more resources into it, or you're going to have to reform it, and most likely you're going to have to do both things. What you're then fundamentally asking is what kind of country are we? What kind of relationship do we have between tax and public services? What's the role of government? What's the nature of our shared sense of society? And we are two years out from a general election, but for the first time, we're now getting to a question which is, what is this Labour Party really about in the face of something that everyone is witnessing and experiencing? And so for that reason, I think it's a political story which shouldn't naturally propel it to the top of the news, but in this case is in the top of people's lives. And so for that reason, Liz, it pains me to say this.
3: Sorry, guys.
0: Liz Liz's story leads the news.
3: <laughs> Girls for the win. <laughs>
0: Right, on that hefty and heavy note, that's it for this week's news meeting. Thank you to Dave. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. And thank you again (laughs) (laughs) to Liz for bringing the stories. And I thank you for listening. Who knows what the next week will throw at us, but whatever happens, I'll be back with three more journalists all trying to convince me that they've got the story that mattered most
2: in the news meeting.